And it looks like we are live. Welcome to the Startup Tank, the Climate Investor Pitch Show, the premier location for climate companies to pitch climate VCs, get some funding, change the world, and make it into a better place. If this is your first time, I'm your host, Matt Ward. You can find us at thestartuptank.com. And I'm also the founding partner of Forward VC in our early stage uh, partner in crime climate accelerator. We help climate companies grow and scale, land new major customers, decarbonize corporates, and yeah, change the world in uh, in big ways. To find out more about us and what we do, visit Forward, the number fourward.vc. We invest in climate companies that move the world forward, pre-seed and seed stage, who are the same type of companies we'll be presenting here on the startup tank. That's not to say we have investments in these companies. We don't, but in some of the companies in the future, we will, and you'll see some of the companies coming through our accelerator, coming on here to pitch. If you're interested in pitching on here as well, you can visit thestartuptank.com to apply, learn more information, and see about our future sessions. We do this every two weeks, Mondays, 5 p.m. CET, uh, so that means our next session is April 3rd, and then we've got another one April 17th, and with this, we're, uh, we're a Shark Tank. Dragon's Den type deal where we bring on top climate VCs, awesome climate founders, and try to get some deals done and some exposure for the the incredible companies because they're generally speaking looking to raise. Especially these days, the uh, the economy is terrible. Credit Suisse apparently just got bought by UES. Fun fact for anyone uh, based out of Zurich. Um, but if you are looking for funding, uh, forwardvc dot uh, forward vc slash vc database, you can find our 950 plus climate VC accelerator incubator CVC database there. You can filter by stage, sector, geography, and check size. So you can find your ideal investor regardless of what you're doing. Today, we've assembled a pretty good lineup of investors as well. I will bring them in here now so they can share a little bit more about themselves and what they're doing. And then we'll jump into the, the pitching portion of the event where every company will have five minutes to pitch with their screen up there, loud and proud to share what they're doing. And then some uh, investor Q&A at the end of the show, we'll, have, we'll choose our climate startup of the night, see if we have a consensus, and then go from there. Uh, I'll hand things over first to Juliana. Do you want to take things away and share a little bit more about King's Philanthropies? Yeah, no problem. Um, nice to meet all of you guys, and thanks for letting us join. Um, so I'm a principal at King Philanthropies. I lead our direct investment work. Um, as a single family office, we are really focused on the intersection of climate and livelihoods. Our goal is to help kind of catalyze new markets by bringing some of the best climate solutions to those who are most heavily impacted by climate, including communities in Africa, as well as Southeast Asia. We really go after best climate solutions. So that's, you know, geographically agnostic. Um, our five main focus areas that we um, invest in are climate smart agriculture, nutritious food systems, food waste, water, and clean energy. Our check sizes range from one to 10 million. We really focus on kind of that seed to series A stage opportunistically, we can also come into later stage deals um, when it makes sense for a mission and alignment. And, um, you know, we also have the flexibility to offer grant funding in addition to equity funding as well as also debt. Um, so our goal is to really um, also create synergies within our portfolio between our nonprofit and for-profit entities. And um, we provide patient capital. So nice to meet you guys. Patient capital is always helpful. Moritz, you want to share a bit more about Better Ventures and what you guys are doing? Sure, absolutely. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks. Um, yeah, so my name is Moritz. I'm a senior investment manager at Better Ventures. 
Uh, we at Better Ventures, we're a business angel club based in Munich, uh, Germany. Um, that means we have roughly 60 business angels in, in our network, um, all of them, and that's quite cool. All of them are entrepreneurs themselves. So they've all gone through the process of building their own companies or worked in the family offices. Um, they are particularly at Better Ventures because they want to support uh, early stage companies, meaning pre-seed and seed companies, um, with not only money, but also with their know-how, their network, their expertise they've gained by building their own companies. Um, yeah, we only invest in impact. Um, that means we we have quite a, a broad, broad definition because we have a broad background of, of angel expertise. Um, we invest in people. Uh, on the people side, we invest in health, education, and new work. Um, and we also invest on, on the planet side. We invest in climate resources and ecosystems. Um, we only invest in Europe, but if you're a startup uh, in Europe, in the impact space, happy to uh, approach us. Awesome. And then Niels, what's uh, creative destruction? What do you guys do? Let's share a little bit more. I think, uh, yeah, it's not my way into this investor panel, not being an investor. Um, the Creative Destruction Lab is what we call an objective-based mentoring program. Uh, so what we do is we get early stage founders at the pre-seed seed stage, uh, typically very technical people, and put them in a room with entrepreneurs who've all built massively scalable companies, typically with valuations above 100 million. Um, we put a couple of industry experts in there and a couple of VCs, and then we help those new founders cut through the noise of being entrepreneurs uh, and help them focus their attention in, in eight-week sprints of, of setting business objectives and kind of reviewing them and opening doors to the network that we can provide. Um, we're 12 sites globally. We have over 20 thematic streams. I'm here representing Oxford University um and the climate stream there but we've yeah worked with over six thousand founders now who've gone on to create equity value north of 15 billion pounds so we have quite a good track record on that front um in terms of climate we look for anything that is yeah deep tech um energy mobility future food built environment uh, and greenhouse gas removal or avoidance um so if you would like to meet people who've done what you're trying to do then hit us up and then on my side, I run Forward VC. We're an early stage accelerator, and that means steroids for your climate company. We've got 170 mentors at some of the top corporates, uh, a couple of the folks here as well, CVCs, government agencies, uh, et cetera, so that we can growth hack our way into major, major customers, acquisitions, pilots, et cetera, for your companies. Places like Porsche, Honda, HSBC, JetBlue, Barclays, EDP, Johnson Matthey. Uh, <laughs> creative Destruction Lab, Department of Energy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you can find out more about us and what we do at forward.vc. But this isn't about us. This isn't about the, the shark, so to speak. This is about the climate companies. And that's why you guys are here to see the to see the showcase. So Yanis uh, with um, Electra One, <laughs> he raised his hand. It was uh, volunteers or victims. He took the he took the bait and he's going to take things away. Uh, you want to share a little bit more about what you guys are doing. Yanis, you'll have five minutes on the clock. And then I'll give you a one minute warning and then we'll do some Q&A. Sound good? Sounds good. Thank you, Matt. And thank you for the opportunity to present here today. And just to clarify for our friends over at the US, there's a, a difference between European markets, electricity markets and US markets. In the US market, you have vertically integrated utilities that produce and distribute the energy. Whereas in Europe, 
You have independent generators and independent energy suppliers who buy that energy and distribute it retail to the to households and businesses. And over the past year, we spoke to a number of energy suppliers in Europe, which faced three main problems. So a low profitability and a low margin model that depends on just selling electricity and issuing a bill at the end of the month, which then leads to low customer loyalty and high churn because of the lack of differentiator between competitors. But more importantly- One quick question, Giannis. Do you yeah. think your screen is sharing? Because it's not. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, it's a- it's, You don't need to. It's all good. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, three, the, the third main point is that energy suppliers today are missing the technology they need that's designed specifically to support business model for the energy transition centered around energy devices like electric vehicles, heat pumps, and batteries. So our team originally set up to build their own smart energy supplier before deciding to build a platform that all energy suppliers need to deliver smart energy services that can drive new high margin revenue and customer stickiness. Um, and our founding team combines expertise in the implementation of data and machine learning platforms, having worked at McKinsey AI and Palantir, the development of digital products from Meta and Bloomberg Energy Finance and business development and corporate finance from Deloitte, as well as a deep understanding of energy market to deliver this foundational platform for energy suppliers. So what is Electrion's product? We're developing a platform that enables energy suppliers to provide smart energy services by connecting their customers' energy devices like electric vehicles, heat pumps, and home batteries, and optimizing their energy use to maximize customer bill savings and the amount of renewable energy consumed, for example, by scheduling the electric vehicle to charge overnight, and aggregating those very same devices into a virtual power plant that ends revenue by providing grid balancing services to the grid. And let's look at an example. So with an electric vehicle, the supplier's customers can connect their electric vehicles onto a platform through the supplier's mobile app with just a few simple clicks without any additional hardware having to be installed within the home. And once connected, we automatically schedule those electric vehicles to charge when electricity prices are cheaper and greener. So that's the optimization part. And when the grid needs relief, we turn off EV charging for a few minutes. So that's providing grid service. So our platform operates this network of electric vehicles as if they were a single large energy device for the virtual power plant that can reduce its consumption in return for compensation when demand exceeds supply in the grid, because the alternative is for the grid operator to pay expensive fossil fuel power plants that use natural gas to ramp up their supply of energy instead. So our platform is basically, our platform's impact is a triple bottom line in action, profit, people, planet. By partnering with ElectriOne, energy supplies can unlock new high margin revenue streams built around these energy assets, they can help their customers reduce their energy bill, but more importantly, they replace fossil fuel power plants with these sustainable virtual power plants that consist of millions of home energy devices. So by building this digital infrastructure to support sustainable VPPs, we envision becoming one of the catalysts for a 100% renewable energy future.
And in terms of how far along we are with our progress, we developed our MVP, which is a platform and a wide level app that can remotely connect and optimize the charging of electric vehicle based on end user preferences. And we're integrating more devices onto our platform such as heat pumps, smart thermostats, solar inverters, and batteries, as well as developing our AI-powered VPP engine over the next 12 months. One minute and, warning. And we are close to having our first pilot going live in Q3, one of the largest, one of the top 10 suppliers in Spain. And we're engaging in conversations with other suppliers across Europe, including the UK, Netherlands, and other countries for additional pilots. And we will seek to enter the US market in 2025, and we see Texas as the natural entry point for us, given the similarities between the Texas market and the European markets. So to wrap up, uh, we see Electric One becoming the go-to residential VPP platform for any energy supplier or utility that wants to reimagine how they engage with customers that have decentralized energy assets, while they also become a critical part of creating the sustainable decentralized grids of the future. Time uh, is up. How much are you guys raising? Uh, so we're wrapping up our first angel money now, uh, angel money now around 400K. Okay, and while I bring the other investors in, just one quick question. Why pitch without a pitch deck? Because yeah, I have a pitch deck that takes 15 minutes to go through. So I thought I might as well wing it and then have you all focus on what I'm saying instead of some nice pictures that I put together. Okay. I uh, It would make it a little easier for me personally, but maybe that maybe that's just me. Juliana, do you want to take things away? Sure. Yeah, I just I think I'll start with one or two questions and then pass it off to Moritz and some of the other um, investors. But, you know, I think the first thing is, how are you guys in terms of your production process? Are you guys doing most of your production in house or how are you kind of combining these pieces together to um, essentially service your customers? So we yeah, we're building a full stack technology platform that's from the supplier. That and everything's built internally, all the way from that API connection to the electric vehicle down to connecting to the grid system and the grid markets. So it's an end to end platform. It's like a trading platform that once you buy that platform and offer it to your customers, we take care of our machine learning, takes care of everything from connecting the asset, optimizing the asset, identifying grid balancing opportunities, and then executing and verifying that trade, that flexibility, that energy you sell to the market. Great, thanks. And then I think my other question is, so it looks like you're starting mainly in Europe, is that correct? And yes. you're eventually scaling to other countries. Um, as part of that kind of timeline, how are you guys looking to kind of scale up people on your team? So how many, what's your head count currently? So we're a, we're a very young startup. We only started in November, 2022. And right now it's the two founders, one uh, software engineer and myself. And we're looking to increase headcount aggressively over the next 24 months. And the majority of the headcount will be software engineers as we seek to scale first within Europe, but then obviously to the US market and maybe Australia, Canada and other emerging markets that seek to adopt, um, let's say a grid structure 
that's more forward looking and is designed for a decentralized energy grid. Great, thank you. I'll pass it off to Moritz so I don't take all the questions here. Yeah, thank you. No, no worries. Um, cool. I, thanks uh, for for pitching. Um, I have a question on the on the customer. So I understood the main customer is the utility companies, and if that's correct, what's the number one reason why they they need you or why they what's the what's the key USP you're selling to them? So there's two key reasons why suppliers get excited when they speak to us. One is that they need to move away from the low margin commodity model of just selling electricity and more importantly decouple their profitability from your consumption and the best way to do that is by building services around those decentralized energy assets and often new ways to generate new high margin revenues let's say that goes beyond just selling electricity um, and that's something that every supplier is looking to do as a way to differentiate themselves from the competition. And the second aspect is that a lot of energy suppliers are not tech-enabled industries. So the revolution we saw that happened in fintech 10 years ago hasn't happened in the energy supply space yet, but it's about to. Um, but still, so these energy suppliers need software solutions that can be deployed and managed without having a highly technical staff internally. And that's what our platform is designed to do to abstract that complexity away from suppliers without having them hire an army of engineers in order to operate a platform. So one of our go-to-market selling points is that we're building a no-code platform that can be operated with just the stuff that the supplier already has in house. Okay, great. And and then also the way I understood your business model is, is, is multiple layers. So basically you start with um, helping the, the private users steering their electric car um, charging, for example and turning that off and on, then there would also need to be some flexible tariffs included. And then on a later stage, as far as I understood, you want to, to pool then the demand and build like virtual power plants. Could you elaborate on maybe the core steps that are needed along the, the, the business model? Like what what needs to happen? Absolutely. Um, and now, Matt, now you say five minutes can be a challenge when we're pitching oh, our yeah. concept, let's say, but Moritz is a very a very good question. So the idea, the first part of the platform is to find a way to incentivize those EV owners to onboard their asset onto our platform. And how do you do that? You work together with the supplier to offer them a tariff potentially that incentivizes them to automate the charging of the electric vehicle, maybe overnight when electricity prices are cheaper or some other form of flexible tariff. And that's the first layer of incentive that you give to the customers so they can make that connection to your platform by shifting the usage around to lower their energy bill, which then that connection opens a much bigger door to provide grid balancing services. Once you're connected to an asset and you're optimizing its consumption, you can then aggregate those optimized assets into a much bigger pool that can provide those grid balancing services. So the first layer is optimizing for bill savings, that enables the next technology layer, which is aggregating those assets together and selling flexibility or energy back to the grid. It's uh, two sides of the same coin. Unless you have the incentive to bring the asset on board, you won't be able to provide grid balancing services. Good. Thank you. I would also pass it on to Niels.
Awesome, thanks. Um, yeah, I guess two questions. Um, one is, if I understand correctly, you're all about like balancing the grid at the moment. Does your product roadmap foresee that you will be able to onboard renewable energy generation as well, so distributed assets? So we see that there's a lot of software already that deals with uh, large scale generation, but our solution focuses is a residential first solution. So every house is going to have a solar panel, hopefully in the next 10 to 20 years. But a solar panel by itself, it's not something, it's not a flexible source of energy. It generates whenever it wants to generate energy when there's a sun. But if you combine a solar panel with a battery, then you truly have a flexible distributed energy generation source that you can aggregate and trade and provide grid balancing. So the way we're positioning ourselves, we're focusing on the residential market and we're mobilizing all assets that can be used to provide those grid balancing services, including consumers, so solar with batteries, as well as electric vehicles, electric vehicles to grid technology, and heat pumps and smart thermostats and then other devices. Okay, understood. Yeah, that was uh, the, the question whether, you know, you could use residential solar pa panels as well. Um, what kind of density of consumers do you need, like, in a given building block uh, or road to, to use your solution so that it actually works? So when it comes to creating a residential vitro power plant, there's, um, there's a minimum requirement. You need at least 500 electric vehicles to be able to be allowed to bid into European balancing market. So that's the minimum requirement. But as you grow, there's network effects. The bigger your pool of assets is, the more balancing energy you can provide to the grid, which means the more revenue you can um, generate for your pool of assets. And that can like bring more and more network effects as you grow. But there is a minimum requirement, but there's it's all upside from there. Okay, and then uh, last question, if I may. Um, so what, what is your outlook on, on that minimum requirement? Or how many vehicles do you have on your platform at the moment? What's the strategy of getting to the 500? So initially, so we're only getting started, right? So we only have like 20 electric vehicles that we're working with right now, and we're building the VPP engine over the next eight, 12 months, we've only been optimization, optimization platform for now. Um, but the way we initially thought about going B2C, but then we realized that if you, if you want to scale, you need to sell your software to the entities that own the relationship with Europe's 300 million households. And that's the energy suppliers that already spend billions building a brand with those consumers. And that's why we're going B2B because we, you can convert a large enough or a small number of suppliers with a large enough customer base, then you truly have um, a large pool, a very large pool of VPP and assets that you can help balance the grid and replace those uh, natural gas powered nuclear plants. In theory, if in theory, if there's enough companies like you that are doing similar things, can that make it so you all never reach that critical scale? Um, well, I hope more companies get created that do what we do because it's necessary for that to happen if we ever want to reach 100% renewable energy grid. But the amount of assets coming online 
is huge, right? The, the, there's estimates that say there's gonna be more than 300 million energy devices in Europe alone. And globally, there's gonna be more than 4 billion devices around the world by 2050. So the market is gonna become huge. And let's not forget that as more and more renewable energy enters the grid, so will volatility in the grid increase. So the need for all these houses to participate is gonna grow exponentially as well. So there's a lot of dynamics here that are basically saying this is gonna be a big market and there's room for more players to come on board with innovative ways to do what we do. And what's the biggest risk you see in the business? The biggest challenge that we see is that we're working with conservative industries like our utilities and energy suppliers. And although their world is being disrupted, you still need to sell to those conservative players. And that's a challenge. And that's something that we've done in our past careers for the past 10 years, which is selling to conservative industries. So that risk and challenge that we see is also an opportunity for us. And then I guess my last question before we move things over to uh next founder of the night would be, why are you doing this? Um, that's a question that like, because I don't have a background in energy. Right? I was always fascinated by the impact that energy can have, whether it's nuclear or fusion or renewable energy. And I guess the reason I decided to do something as challenging as this is because the impact is huge. We need to get to net zero by 2050. And the only way to get to net zero is by getting rid of fossil fuels from our electricity grid. And the only way to do it is by creating residential VPPs that can mobilize all this sustainable energy within homes to do exactly that. And that's the main driver of why we took on this huge challenge. Okay. Any last questions, folks? Thank you, everyone. Awesome. Then, Yanis, thanks for, thanks for presenting. Well, we transition over to our next company. If you guys haven't hit the subscribe bell on YouTube or wherever you're listening, be sure to do that. Subscribe and share the startup tank with fellow founders, friends, et cetera. Additionally, we've got a climate founders and climate investors Slack community. You can find that at forward.vc slash startup Slack. We've got a thousand other climate founders and techies in there, all helping network and grow uh, grow each other's businesses forward. More details at forward.vc, the number forward.vc. So we've gone uh, a bit of energy, a bit of infrastructure. How about we uh, we build things bigger? Let's go on. Let's go bricks. Uh, Victor, you want to take it away with plastic brick and share more about how you guys are trying to change the game when it comes to construction? Absolutely. Thank you, Matt, for the invitation. And hello, everyone. I will share my... screen so please let me know if you can you can see it is visible my screen now it's visible your connection is not great but it seems to be okay take it away okay well hello i'm victor i'm the ceo of plastic brick we make stronger lighter and durable construction bricks of plastic waste there are global issues with plastic pollution and brick industry that we must address now. For bricks, it's manufacturing process is responsible for 8% of global CO2 emissions. 
and its current weight has high costs of transportation, steel infrastructure, and labor. For plastic, it is a waste problem growing exponentially in every city, since recycling is only able to process 5% of this waste globally. The rest is burned or goes to oceans, rivers, and landfills. Plastic waste and legacy concrete cause a combined 12% of CO2 global emissions, posing a great threat to our planet and our survival. To combat this, how might we repurpose plastic waste into construction materials? The answer is plastic brick. It is a stronger, lighter, and long-lasting construction brick made out of 100% recycled plastic, which lowers time, cost of labor, and carbon footprint. It's composed by plastic waste materials, which are recovered, sorted, and turned into solid construction bricks. Since plastics are not biodegradable and waterproof, plastic brick doesn't crumble and lasts for decades. It is three times lighter and twice as hard than traditional bricks, diminishing cost of, of transportation, labor, steel, and maintenance. In close proximity to landfills, where independent recycling communities collect and sort plastic materials, we install cutting-edge satellite manufacturing facilities housed in portable containers. We buy this plastic per kilogram, process it, and transform it into solid plastic brick blocks, which are sold and shipped directly to real estate developers through independent transporters. There's a huge market already. $1,700 billion is the current value of concrete block and brick manufacturing, growing exponentially at 5.79% each year. There are 353 million tons of plastic waste that are being thrown in the open. And in the US alone, there are 3.9 million construction businesses growing 2.8% each year. There are growing trends and infinite raw material with steady price to work with. Plastic Brick is fully aligned with five sustainable development goals. End of poverty, since we create jobs in local recycling communities that collect and sort plastic waste. Ensuring sustainable consumption and production, we take plastic waste and turn it into construction materials, avoiding destruction of ecosystems. And we make cities sustainable by creating a dynamic of sustainable and affordable housing. According to lab testing results, plastic brick outperforms legacy bricks in several key areas. It is not only lighter in weight, but also longer and lasting uh, with an increased uh, uh, lasting performance. Additionally, plastic brick won't crumble or deteriorate due to harsh weather conditions, making it a reliable and cost-effective choice for any construction project. Plus, it doesn't require cement to assembly. Instead, simple carpentry the screws and tools can be used to put it together. One minute plastic warning. Construction can be more efficient, affordable, and sustainable than ever before. So far, we have the risk our supply chain securing a supply continuous of plastic with two recycling unions, 
we have validated a repeatable and scalable manufacturing process. And we have a functional product that has been validated with three in letters of intent from real estate developers. We're raising 500K to invest in a satellite manufacturing facility, sales and marketing activities, and research and development. With this investment, we'll be able to ramp up our manufacturing capacity and generate an equivalent of three houses daily. At a price of 60 cents per brick, this is $2 million in our recurring revenue. We are seasoned teams of three with hands-on experience of circular economy and manufacturing development processes involving metal and plastic. And time Helping is up. The construction industry. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for thank you for sharing everything, Victor. Thanks. It's uh, it's really interesting what you guys are doing. Well, I'm bringing in the other investors. Quick question I have is: bricks and construction have lots of regulations. Do you have any potential issues or any worries about how you're going to get these approved in different jurisdictions? Yeah, this uh, it depends on the jurisdiction, basically. So basically, in Europe and the United States, you have uh, more time or more. It, there are more regulations in place, but in countries such as Mexico or Colombia, there's in no, there's are not like a, a strict regulations around construction blocks. So our go-to-market strategy will be to begin with those countries where there's a, like a an unregulated market regarding you know approval of said materials and move forward uh, to other uh, bigger markets where regulations are. In place, but you know, it's not it's not impossible, but it will take some some months to get there. Very good. Then Niels, you want to take things away? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I think the regulation part is like big on everyone's minds. Uh, I get your idea of going into in unregulated markets. What's your like traction in those markets? You say you've got three letters of intent. Are they in which countries are they? What quantities do you foresee you can sell to these people? Um, and yeah, what kind of safety testing potentially have you done if you're not going with regulation? Uh, let, uh, I'll share. I'll share the like the comparison chart, so we we can see like the 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 the, the main variables that are. A relevant in concrete blocks. So basically, we ran um, a lab test within uh, a, our university facility. We test this block for moisture absorption, weight, a compression, the brake model, and water absorption. So basically, plastic brake outperforms a concrete concrete blocks. And this was made in in Colombia, where uh, you only need to prove that these, you know that you comply with these kind of variables and you, you're ready to go. It takes a week for this to be uh, achieved in an independent uh, certification facility. So it's a straightforward process. So we did product development in Colombia. We're based in, in the United States. And since we have already you know, landed in Colombia, we will begin uh, by developing these market and the letters of intent are from a Colombian developers. Okay, understood. Um, and in terms of staying with the safety issue, just <laughs> that I'll hand it over to the other investors. Um, 
how do they perform in terms of fire retardants? In terms of sorry, I didn't so how how, how, flam how flammable are your blocks? Are they fire retardant? I mean, plastic lends itself to burning quite well. And you need to apply four hundred degrees of temperature for it to burn. So basically, they're they're very stable in terms of of you know temperature. What about weight? I feel like if I have something made out of bricks that's designed to stay still because it's heavy and it's not quite so heavy, it's much more likely to tip. This is a three three times lighter than than the your average block, but basically it is not like steady because the the brick itself, but it has steel inside it. So steel is what you know. Uh, bring stability to construction, to constructions or, or housing facilities. So basically, uh, when you have a, a a lighter, you know, weight, you will nest will you will need less steel to support this infrastructure. So you will have uh, cost saving there without sacrificing stability uh, in the you know in the construction. You know, basically when you have Heavier constructions made of concrete, these will, you know, this is a more risky construction. Since, you know, if, if there's a, a, an earthquake or, or something like that, it will, you know, be, will be prone to fall or crack while a lighter infrastructure with, you know, same uh, steel will, will not do that. Sorry, can I also jump in on the specifications of the bricks? Um, what about humidity? Hum no, not humidity, but like breathability. Because I, I always thought bricks, like the material, is is very important that it that it has a certain th throughput of air or something that that humidity within the house is not too high. No, the 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 thing with plastic is that you will have a how is this like a temperature isolation while you know, other bricks or traditional bricks will not. So basically, it is 18 degrees outside. You will feel 80 degrees, 80 degrees, 18 degrees inside. So we, what happens with plastic is that it isolates temperature and sound also. So you can you can see that this is a better material to isolate temperature. <laughs> And how can it be integrated into the conventional building process, or can it be integrated? So, or do the processes have to be adjusted quite a lot? You with this, or to work with plastic brick, you will need a carpentry tools. Yes, a, in a traditional construction environment, you will need cement. You will need different, you know, a, or heavy machinery to put together this kind of blocks. We're offering that same block, which is lighter, and you won't need cement to work with this. You know, you can use just screws and you will be using the same steel and the same materials that you, you need to build houses. So, you know, basically uh, the education uh, is very little for it to start, you know, being adopted by by stream market. And also it is faster, you know, it is faster to put a screw into two blocks 
than you know to put cement and uh, wait for it to you know to to solidify. So it's a faster construction this way, and you know the education of the on the part of the the customer is is very little because they have already the the materials and and the tools for this. It's, so it's screwed. They're screwed together. Yeah, they're they're screwed. They're not you know you know they do not need cement. You you only need a a car carpentry screw to to assemble or you know to put together two blocks. But you know anyway you will be using the steel and in and, and concrete as you do so, but in less quantities. I would have one more question if I may, and then. <laughs> <laughs> cool. uh, how, how far are you with the manufacturing process? Uh, like, how, how developed is it already? We have already the, the design of this. We're raising money in order to construct a manufacturing facility. So far, we have made this with a, a Machile, uh, an ally that you know uh, uh, allowed us to create our prototypes. But you know, you know, we we use of the shelf equipment, there is, there is not a specialized equipment that, that we need to develop. And uh, well, so far we have validated this, you know, manufacturing times, machines that we need, infrastructure, space, a, a simulation process to know the throughput of, uh, of the production throughput. So we have validated these different uh, variables and you know, we're raising money to build the thing to manufacture thousands of blocks. Wonderful. Thanks, Victor. Um, a couple more questions on my end. So um, when you're kind of working with your current customers right now, it looks like you have a couple of analyzers based on your deck. Have you guys prototyped with your customers and have they given you any feedback in terms of like, you know, what's working and what's not? Yeah, the main uh, feedback, you know, or the, the, the during our customer discovery process was pricing. You know, we needed to compete directly with the pricing that they were getting from other, you know, legacy in companies that offer, you know, the same, basically the, the same block. So, a uh, Although this is a, a premium block, if you, you, if you, as you can see, we need to offer the same pricing that, that they're getting actually. So that was the main um, feedback that was that they gave to us. Other feedback is that a different, different uh, real estate developers uh, work with different blocks. So that's why uh, we need to create different patterns, you know, not, not one kind of block. So that's, you know, this is like a, a more, a, a, Lego, a Lego pattern that we developed to, you know, to validate with customers. And this is more like a, a block pattern that is more, you know, um, widely available in market. So Janet, we need to, you know, adapt to uh, the pattern of the brick that the uh, construction builder is working with so those were the two basic um, feedback was pricing and you know the the block pattern that uh, is very heterogeneous among real estate developers. 
that's helpful. So that kind of feeds into my second question. So would you say pricing is on par with your competition? Or that's right. Say, okay, so you're trying to make pricing competitive. And then what about like your margins? So how do your margins look in terms of like creating the actual block in terms of costs? Do you feel like that's fairly competitive with, you know, your in, in, in mass production, gross margin is 70%. 70% of each one. And then what's the time frame to kind of get to that 70%? Would you say a couple, six months, a couple of years? What's your time? Uh, once we get the funding, uh, the next within the next six months, we will get to that price or those margins. Great. And then you are trying to create the product in-house. Is that right? And not use a co-manufacturer to create the product. No, it, this is a, a, a trade secret in terms of manufacturing and okay. the, the mixture of plastics that are, are used. So, but, you know, to create the prototypes, we, we, we did this with, with an ally that already has the, the machinery of this. But yeah, uh, once we get the, the machinery, it will remain as a trade secret. Okay, so you're doing the trade secret path and not your technology. That's right. That's right, because, you know, patents are very local to, to, to each country. And then, you know, it can take six, eight months to, to get a patent. We can, you I know, just a little go bit to market with that. a trade secret. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. can just go to market with, with, with our trade secret. Okay, wonderful. And then are you looking to kind of build out any other like services or product lines to complement what you guys are doing right now? Yeah, we have thought, uh, you know, about launching maybe tiles, your tiles on, on uh, uh, you know, tiles that go in, in the roof, but you know, we believe, and this is you know a preliminary belief, that we can replace concrete altogether with plastic. So that that's a, like a a huge ambition, yes. But we think that that plastic uh, have better properties than than concrete, and we can we can get there, but it will okay. take some some time. Right now, we we just began with a, a basic pro a basic product, you know, that everybody understand, and uh, you know, like well, we get to to product market fit, but but we we have a a big ambition about you know taking out uh, legacy concrete forever. Wonderful. And then my last question is: Have you compared? the kind of emissions of concrete slash and or bricks with what you, your process right now for recycling plastic and using it for other purposes or any emissions that are resulting from Yeah, uh, like we calculate this is that each kilogram of, of recycled plastic equals 2.5 kilograms in CO2 savings. Yes, so you can multiply a a 1.6 kilogram that weighs uh, one of our bricks by 2.5. And that's like the CO2 savings that we will have uh, per year. Yes, so that's how we have calculated this, but I know that- Per year? No, per, per unit, like- Ah, okay. This, this, this weight, 1.6 kilograms, if you multiply this by 2.5, you will get, you know, the the CO two savings per unit. So if you scale this to the 
yearly production, you will get the, the CO2 savings. We're thinking about 200,000 200, metric tons of CO2 per year. Are your, I might have missed this, but are, are your plastic bricks also recyclable? Yeah, you Reuse. can at the at the end of the their you know their their life cycle, you can melt this and create a different material or create more bricks. So there, there's a zero waste process involved in creating these blocks. And when the blocks burn, what type burn. of chem? Uh, so let's say you've got a house fire. What happens with the blocks? I know burning plastic can oftentimes have a lot of cancerous um, kind of after components or carcinogens coming out if you burn plastic. Well, if, if, if this is the case that it will be equivalent to incinerating plastic, which has been done so far globally, but that's like... But not in like your city or not in like your house. But what it's, I'm getting is that what happens is uh, if a house burns yes yeah, so this will basically or be equivalent to burning plastic and with the the equivalent co2 emissions but that relates to a, a tragedy sorry I, I wasn't talking so much about co2 emissions i was talking about your neighbor's house burns down or you are you poisoning the entire block with cancer because of the the burning of plastic and other people breathing that in, normally it's it's segregated away from where plastics are burned. If that makes sense. Oh, so you like yeah? If you burn it, it will release a, a, a toxic, you know, a, a toxic emission like well, the 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 plastic does. But that's a as I said, a, a tragedy. And that's a property of the material. Any last questions, folks? Yeah, I just wondered um, who else is doing this and how do you compare to them? Because now we've got like the comparison to concrete blocks, but it'd be good to see what the landscape looks like. Okay, absolutely. Uh, we we have known different startups that are doing this in different you know jurisdictions. For example, you have Bifusion in the United States, but what they created was like the technology itself that they sell to municipalities to process their own plastic and create like a very big block. We have known a, in Asia, there's another company, I think it's called Ecobricks, something like that. And they make like this very similar block to this, but they're aiming for the, the civil, you know, or to construct um, um, roads, yes. And we know another company in Argentina uh, that is creating this kind of blocks, but for interiors or uh, for one-story buildings. Our main uh, competitive advantage is that with plastic brick, you can create two or more story buildings and you don't need to educate people in how to use these products because you know it's the same block that you are getting uh, from your uh, provider so yeah basically we we're different since we are aiming for replacing the block itself 
and we're not uh, selling the technology or using it for interiors only. Awesome. Then thanks. Thanks, Victor. I think that I think that wraps it up from a from a panelist side of things. Really appreciate what you guys are doing. See huge, huge potential in it if you are able to scale it, because well, we've put a lot of concrete into the world. And the more of that, the, the more of that that we can avoid or or mitigate, uh, certainly the better. Um thank you. Philip, you want to share what you guys are doing with ocean-based solutions, a very deep tech, very early stage company that's trying to use our oceans and create new lungs for our world. Do you want to do you want to take it away, Randy? Uh, sorry, not Randy, Philip. I've shared my screen. Can you see that okay? Looking good. Your okay. five minutes starts now. Take it away. Hey, great. I'm Phil Kithill, founder and CEO of Ocean-Based Climate Solutions. I'll tell you about our ocean upwelling pumps, which regenerate ocean ecosystems while sequestering CO2. And you'll notice the dollar sign, that's where we make money from sequestering CO2. And how come this is not scrolling down? I guess I use my mouse. So the ocean has a vast carbon storage potential, the deep ocean, 37,000 gigatons versus the atmosphere or land and plants much less. So that's where to solve the problem, at least start to solve the problem with, a, with a excess CO2 in the atmosphere. And the background science is developing quickly. The National Academies uh, of the Sciences came out with a report on ocean carbon dioxide removal, uh, identified six different approaches, including our approach, ocean tubes, upwelling and downwelling. We were the only company mentioned in the report. They didn't recognize some of the latest developments, which uh, provide up to 75% additional volume potential of, uh, of ocean uh, carbon dioxide removal from the solubility effect, that's a chemical physical effect, and also from fish. How could they have overlooked fish, but they did. So this is the uh, report, uh, Artificial Upline or Refined Narrative. It really shows that we are climate relevant. We can move the needle. Uh, with our technology, this is the amount of gigatons of CO2 that could be removed over 80 years with our technology and the different effects that that comes from. Uh, and so uh, this is a, a big deal. And um, we do it because the ocean nutrient profiles uh, vary from the surface to the depth. So at the near the surface, there's almost no nutrients, nitrate, phosphate, silicate. As you go deeper, you get much greater nutrients. And that's what our pumps do. They bring up nutrients from 400 meters, for instance, up to about five meters depth, powered by wave energy. You get a <clears throat> biological response, phytoplankton, the fish food. You also get the solubility effects and the CO2 incorporated into the phytoplankton sink by various pathways down to the deep ocean. Been at this since 2005, over 100 days of ocean testing. A lot of traction recently uh, with our real-time uh, MRV methodology developed this year, the Cell System SolidWorks, Montana State University, uh, submitting a grant on our behalf, Air Miners Accelerator, just invited by Microsoft to submit. The NL inquiry came in on Friday, and you, thank you very much for inviting me. So our business model, the demand is 
over the top. There's you need over 2,000 gigatons of carbon dioxide removal to return to a stable climate. So there will be a supply shortage for a very long time. We sell the pumps and they deliver the carbon dioxide removal. The buyer's cost per ton is based on the pump selling price and how many tons over the life of the pump. So one time upfront cost, the pumps last multiple years out in the ocean, powered by wave energy, uh, bringing up the nutrients and delivering the CO2. And we provide the real-time measuring and reporting. So it's different than most other technologies because every 10 minutes or every hour, you get a report showing pretty exactly how much CDR has occurred. So verification and the certification is whatever the buyer wants to do with that. We meet the seven different criteria that our typical uh, buyers have for additional durable and so on. Our scaling up plan looks like this. We can build 10 per year. Uh, we can build one per year. We built two last year, uh, 100 per year, 1,000. Uh, the 20,000 per year would be a factory the size of a Walmart supercenter if they vacated it, which they are. So that gives you an idea of how this would scale up. And uh, the cost per ton, of course, comes down over time. Our exit scenarios and acquisition, IPO, or investors can stay on board, dividends and stock buybacks. Quite a management team, uh, over 260 years combined experience with the senior team and the uh, junior, I won't call them junior team, they're big career team uh, coming on board. So we're asking for up to $2 million to advance the NOAA grant. It would not start till September 1st. We wanna get started right away. If we have to wait till December, we lose a year. That means Earth loses a year. We cannot afford to lose a year. So we're looking to advance that grant with some private funding from you all. A half million would get us started or the full two million would be great and convertible note or whatever suits. So there's my contact info, and I don't have the clock, but I guess awesome I'm time is up. I missed I missed your one minute warning. I apologize about that, but <laughs> it looks okay. like you nailed the it looks like you nailed the timing. Let me bring it back our other panelists in here, and while I'm doing that, you've been at this since 2005. Why is it taking this long? That's never a good sign, especially in the venture space. Yeah, so um, let me stop my screen share here. So uh, it's the market has not been developed until now. Carbon dioxide removal didn't exist in 2005. We actually started as a hurricane mitigation project from Hurricane Katrina hitting New Orleans. And we were bringing up cold water, which cools the upper ocean, reduces hurricane intensity. The insurance companies wouldn't buy it, but we soon learned about the role, how the ocean works. And as I mentioned, the science on the ocean has been developing uh, only recently with ocean carbon dioxide removal being recognized uh, in 2021 by the National Academies. So it's been a long road. We've been able to keep the ball in the air and uh, now we're at the right time in the right place. Is there any risk we overcarbonate the oceans? There is. And actually we solved that because we are called a, a gentle nudge <laughs> to the ocean ecosystem. Uh, we don't, we're not hitting it with a hammer of overstimulating. When you overstimulate the ocean, it would be like the Gulf of Mexico dead zones where you get the Mississippi River dumping nitrates in vast amounts out into a limited volume of water. So our upwelling pumps, the flow rate and the spacing of the pumps, which we can control, is such that uh, we 
deliver the right amount of nutrients. Uh, and it's a 24-7, 365 process powered by waves. Uh, so it's not a sporadic dump like you have, for instance, with Mississippi River uh, and nitrates. Moritz, do you want to take it away? Go first. Yeah, I have a, I have a very stupid question up front because I'm not sure if I 100% got what the pumps are actually doing or what, maybe can you explain that? once again and also your how, what you've changed or what your specific technological edges yeah so the pump is a basically three parts a buoy that goes up and down on passing waves a long tube a fabric tube 400 meters deep along extending vertically in the ocean and then a heavy bottom weight with a one-way valve so on this the buoy is lifting the valve is closed the water inside the tube is lifted upward and then as the wave passes by, the buoy drops, it opens a valve at the bottom, releases the water from the top of the tube five meters deep, and you're delivering those nutrients that formerly we at the bottom, you're ratcheting the water column upward and delivering those nutrients up to the sunlight zone. And so then you trigger the biological response and also the solubility effect, which is um, you're bringing up old water, it has not been at the surface for 500 to 1,000 years, so it has a lower CO2 solubility. And you bring that up and it's like a CO2 sponge. And that's the, the boost, if you will, the bonus uh, that has recently been uh, uh, put forth by that paper uh, that I mentioned. Yeah. Interesting. And a uh, question also on the team and, and how, you, how you came up or how you developed the, 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 the solution would be very interesting. Yeah, so um, my chief engineer, who's shown uh, next to me on that uh, team slide, Phil Fulham in Albuquerque, he and I have worked together since 1995, a previous venture, automotive safety technologies, uh, smart airbags, crash sensing, occupant sensing. Um, and we sold that company to uh, a tier one automotive supplier, Method Electronics, in 2004. And he is president of a uh, sheet metal shop in Albuquerque. So they do our manufacturing. We do the fabric tube in-house. And then he and I and the rest of our team oversee the deployment of the other logistical items. Uh, we have an electronics uh, subcontractor, which is the leader in uh, wave energy sensors at CBU Systems. Um, as I mentioned, we have Montana State as our uh, governance partner, and actually they've applied for this NOAA grant, the $2 million grant um, uh, on our behalf <clears throat> and, um, and then others, so uh, scientists and so on. Okay, great. And, and I think I saw pictures of, of the prototype already in the deck or was that, was that a simulation? No, no, that was the real thing uh, off California where we do have a permit from the US Army Corps of Engineers off Los Angeles to conduct testing. That's a five-year permit, so we're still good to go on that for future testing. Um, and so, yeah, and then we um, built two units last year. The second one went out to the Canary Islands with the German Marine Research Institute and also the Spanish Marine Research uh, Institute, their, their boat uh, for a test uh, there that was in November. Got great data and also learned a few things. And I, I know, Matt, you asked the question about risks, I think, already, but is there, 
I, I can imagine if you're like changing the whole ecosystem. Like, unintended consequences. Yeah, unintended consequences. Yeah, my, mine would be like on, on risk. Like if you're, if you're, I mean, there's a very sensible ecosystem in the water, and then if you're if you're changing that, that might have uh, mm -hmm. impact on, on the environment in there. Yeah, and uh, first of all, uh, this is controllable in two different ways. One, simply by the pump spacing. So we have a known flow rate of 0.67 cubic meters per second. And if we space the pumps out farther, then we're stimulating the ocean area in between to a lesser degree because they're spaced out further. Um, the, the water we're bringing up mixes uh, into a smaller uh, amount over that larger area. That's one way. Second is the pumps can be removed. So if there is a, the unknowns unknowns, yes, we can stop the process and reverse it. And we would not, of course, deploy 10 million of these all at once. <laughs> that would physically, logistically be impossible. That's why I saw the 10, 100,000, and so on, scale up slide. Cool, thank you. With geoengineering, there's always the risk of dependency or the risk of things as Moritz was kind of saying, and as I was saying as well, the unintended consequences. I do not foresee any type of potential issues with fundamentally changing the the the, the chemistry and the and the biological makeup of of our oceans without actually knowing mm -hmm. what that will do. Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, um, two answers. First of all, this is a natural process. Uh, upwelling happens all around the world uh, in the oceans, both coastal and far offshore, but not evenly distributed. So uh, nutrients, half the oxygen we breathe comes from the ocean due to photosynthesis from upwelling of nutrients. So uh, I've just taken five breaths and two and a half of them <laughs> came from the ocean. So that's natural. Um, and uh, the second part of your question, I got sidetracked there. Well, even I mean, even natural, like yeah, the wolves are natural. Wolves are natural predators to prevent overpopulation. But if we put ten million wolves into anywhere, <laughs> this is not ten million wolves. <laughs> but uh, so um, we are, of course, already geoengineering the Earth uh, with catastrophic near-term consequences with the amount of CO two in the atmosphere. Pre-industrial was 280 parts per million. We're now at 420 and going up at a steady pace. So we need to dial back um, the CO2 in the atmosphere, which is the primary greenhouse gas, not the only one, but the primary one. And so, yes, there's you can do it unnaturally, or you can do it by leveraging nature-based. And this is a nature-based solution, one of several nature-based solutions. You look like you want to say something, Juliana? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, just a follow-up question on that. Um, so one of the outputs is phytoplankton, right? So you guys are trying to produce more of that. So do you have any ideas or, you know, kind of innovation plans in the works to kind of monitor 
you know, some of these unintended consequences. So, you know, is there ways to like monitor the nitrates or phosphates or, you know, concentration of phytoplankton where it's like optimized, but not going to cause additional risk for overpopulation of that species? Yeah, each pump has a suite of uh, instruments on it, sensors, uh, both basic ones like temperature and flow rate and highly sophisticated ones like nitrate sensor, dissolved oxygen, uh, okay. uh, salinity, pH, and so on. And that's actually how we do the real-time uh, monitoring is we satellite uplink that data. Um, not every sensor would have the $100,000 package of highly sophisticated, about one in 10 initially, and then we scale it according to what the data needs are. But yeah, we, we know where the pumps are. Uh, we're getting a, a, in the Canary Islands, we got a 10 minute update. It flooded our inbox <laughs> with uh, information yeah. on what was going That's on. Great. That's yeah. great. So I also have a couple of questions on kind of your business model. So who can you walk us through like some of who would your customers be? I would love to kind of learn a little bit more about that. And sure, you know, it looks like, you know, it's a high, it's a pretty high price. I understand that the pricing, but would love to kind of just hear more about that. Yeah. Yeah. Microsoft would be a perfect example. And uh, we reached out to them a couple of weeks ago. We have re previously, um, submitted to their request for proposals for carbon dioxide removal. Microsoft has publicized, they wanna remove every ton they've ever emitted, going back to when Bill Gates founded the company in Albuquerque, New Mexico, by the way, long, long ago. And um, so they are on a path to do that. They have contracted with a pretty long, wide range of different uh, technologies. Uh, most recently, uh, another ocean-based company called Running Tide which has a different approach to this. And I'm highly, uh, uh, very positive on Running Tide. I think they've got a, a great product and a great company. Uh, we match up pretty well with them in terms of how we do it and what we do compared to what they do. So it's not a competitor, it's rather overlay. Uh, but Microsoft would be the perfect example. And so there they go. They are willing to fund these startup technologies to remove CO2 and get they want to not only get to zero emissions, but undo what they've done. And they're one of the leaders. Okay, and then what would be, in your opinion, their motivation to buy something like this? Obviously they might have an emission, like a mission to reduce emissions, but you know, what would be their motivation? Would they be trying to you know, use this to sell carbon credits or what do you think? would be part, how would this help their business model? Yeah, in my opinion, they're doing it for the in-house benefits, but also the PR benefits. Um, they view it as a competitive advantage, I believe. And I think other companies also find that. And there have been studies showing that sustainability sells. My soap is green and it's better than the black soap or the white soap. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's a a competitive advantage in the marketplace for a company to... Now, there are green washers, many of them, and there are the real ones. I'd like to point to Microsoft because they are one of the real ones. And I think more and more. Now, there are SEC rules coming out, by the way, which require disclosure of climate risks. And that will drive the marketplace to become more real because that will be part of the, uh, the 10K or whatever the forms are that public corporations file. So public corporations are the target market and 
they're increasingly getting on board. There's another organization called the Science-Based Targets and Initiative, over 3,500 companies worldwide. A lot of that is greenwashing, but again, they too are getting away, getting into putting real money into the real, real problem. Yeah. Okay. And then last kind of two questions here. So in terms of, you know, you, you probably have to get permits, right. To, you know, use this product. Um, do you see a path forward to kind of help your customers make sure that they can get the permitting that they need, or are you kind of managing that? So, you know, what's the process for that? Up till now, we have done the permitting. We got a permit off Oregon in 2010, 11, 12. We got a permit in Peru in 2015, 16, and in Newfoundland in 2017, 18, and then in California uh, just last in 2021, 22. Um, but there is legislation that is going to be hitting Congress to update and bring the whole permitting scheme <laughs> into today's world because. Uh, you know, the rules, they're actually, the, there's one school of thought that we do not need a permit because we're not adding anything to the ocean. We're just stirring it up. Um, and so there's, but it's, it's not solid to say that. So there is legislation that has been proposed just in the last week or so to uh, okay. clear up the permitting. Okay, and then my last question before I hand it over to Niels here. Um, so in terms of, you know, you mentioned exits at the end, who would you consider to be groups that you would want to exit, you know, the business to? So one of my favorite companies is 3M, global manufacturing company, 55,000 products. <laughs> How can anyone manage 55,000 products? And they claim a third of them didn't exist five years ago. So they're a, they're a science-based company. They're highly innovative. Um, and anyway, they're just one example of a company that could take this on and become, make it to be what it needs to be. But there's probably more, yeah. And then I guess one last question. And I guess, oh, sorry, and then Niels is up, sorry. Two, two, two questions then on my side. A, you don't, you don't normally see founders at your age founding a business that's something that has the five to 12 plus year time horizon. What are your personal goals with us? Sure, and I had brought in the, the team on the bottom row of the team slide. Uh, Salvador Garcia is on this call, I believe is my backup uh, great guy, marketing whiz. Um, and we have a junior engineer. We have Chris White, who's uh, 38 years old as our COO. Um, and, uh, and so we have, uh, and then the science team and modeling team. So, you know, we're dedicated to bringing in um, young guns to uh, assume the role. And I will be the fatherly figure uh, uh, providing the, uh, Guidance when asked. Good answer, good answer. And then the other question I have is, businesses that are built purely around carbon credits can be dangerous because you don't know what the actual prices of those credits are going to be. What's your what's your kind of break-even price for where you guys, where there is a business and where there's no business case, essentially? 
Yeah, and that's why our business model is to sell the pumps, which will last multiple years, but we don't know how many years. And the more pumps we deploy, the longer will be the average life. Yes, you may have a hurricane or cyclone come through, and if you have a thousand pumps out there spread across the ocean, you might lose 10 or 50, but you won't lose all thousand because they're spread out. And so it's uh, a function of the uh, the flow rate, of course, how much nutrients you're bringing up, time of year. Um, we do not operate in the Arctic or Antarctic, by the way. So we're generally the uh, mid-latitudes, 40 degrees north, 40 degrees south. Um, uh, but you have the seasonal changes. So it's a moving equation as to that. But what the company buys is a pump that has providing real-time data for its entire life. And then at the end of its life, they will say, okay, it lasted six years. Therefore, the carbon removed was, I'll just pick a number, a thousand tons. And we paid $75,000 for it. So our price is uh, whatever that is, $75 a ton or something. Understood. Niels? Um, I think we've covered quite a lot. I'm conscious of time, uh, so I might just yield uh, so we can get the other three companies to. Okay, perfect. Then, Philip, thanks so much for presenting, sharing what you guys are doing. It's uh, it's fascinating. We went from one uh, one super deep hardware-focused company to now we have another one, uh, Randy with Sicilium Tech. Randy's trying to bring uh, solar panels and silicon wafers to the U.S. in a big way with a new... Uh, the new technology and way of doing it. You want to take things away, Randy? Yes, thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for the uh, invitation. And uh, really glad that we do this in English. Really appreciate it. <laughs> um, okay, we get, let's get started. So again, my name is uh, Randy Eager. I'm the uh, co-founder, CEO of Silicium Tech. We're a Carnegie Mellon uh, spinoff. Can you can everyone see my screens? Looking good. Take it away. Okay, good. Uh, Carnegie Mellon spinoff, and we're focused completely on rebuilding the U.S. Uh, solar supply chain, and we're doing that by actually uh, selling, building, and selling uh, silicon wafers as well as solar cells. Um, this uh, our unfair uh, advantage here is that we can do this and be able to reduce costs cut costs in half and actually reduce the CO2 emitted during uh, construction or, or production in half as well. Uh, our CTO faculty member, emeritus faculty member, uh, Eric Yitze has been working on this for the last 10 years, thanks to $5 million in funding and uh, doing this uh, at CMU. So as we're um, uh, uh, moving out, uh, let's let's jump into the presentation. So uh, really this advantage of ours is thanks to a continuous process. Maybe bring you up to speed if, if you're not quite familiar with uh, um, uh, uh, solar panels or, or modules. We start with polysilicon. Anybody who makes wafers starts with polysilicon, produce wafers. Those wafers are used as base material for cells. Uh, many cells are pulled, combined together to create a module. In the US, uh, as strange it may seem, there is not a single manufacturer of wafers or cells in the US today. 
So this is the market opportunity for us. We do this on a continuous process instead of the today manual two-step uh, process that is much more uh, uh, difficult. So looking at, at the market, if you would focus on the left side first, silicon wafers and cells. Uh, this is uh, this whole chart is based on current uh, manufacturing capabilities as well as uh, expansion and um, uh, announcements of, of new material, of, of new processes going on. Uh, you, you can see that there's zero uh, last year and this year for silicon wafers and cells, but there have been some companies that have announced. Uh, the 13 is in gigawatts, so it's the, it's the production. Uh, every gigawatt here uh, that you're looking at is about uh, 200 million um, uh, uh, cells, 200 million uh, wafers or cells. So now moving to the right, again, this is all US uh, data. So you can see the, the blue charts are, are representing the number in gigawatts of how many uh, cells, sorry, how much production is, uh, is being done. And the red line is the amount of demand that's forecasted for the US. So even with all of this new production coming in online, we're still not reaching that, that uh, point. The, the, the overriding point here for the slide is that you can see this huge mis mismatch between wafers and cells produced in the US and volume of manufacturing. So this inherently is our opportunity. So a little bit more about the process. The current process is, if you can see the, the picture here, this is uh, silicon uh, production, very large piece, big piece of machinery here, lots of vertical uh, pulling and action to produce it. But basically the reason there's so much material wasted is a cylinder has to be turned into squares. So a lot of material loss there. Where we do it on a continuous process, we produce exactly the, the amount of material width and thickness that's needed and cut it to the, to the right length. So why, why is now uh, the time to do this? Uh, incredible tailwinds for us uh, from uh, European energy crisis, with, which most of you are, are feeling directly. Uh, uh, China is out of favor. There's uh, tariffs and unfair labor practices that are being uh, uh, legislated against. One minute uh, warning. For us in the US though, it is definitely the um, Inflation Reduction Act as having the largest impact. Uh, the team pulling this together is myself. This is my uh, uh, fifth spinoff from Carnegie Mellon. Uh, two exits, uh, the other two are still, uh, still in process, uh, seed stage. Uh, I really formative years for me were in uh, uh, BASF, actually spent time in uh, Ludwigshafen in Germany, um, uh, enjoyed that time. But the last 20, 25 years for me have been in, in and around startups on the investor side, as well as uh, playing other roles. Eric is our faculty member and uh, process control expert. He's actually- Time is up. Built polysilicon plants. How much are you guys looking to raise? So we're we're looking to raise 500 and the first 100 has been circled. Okay, quick question while I bring the other investors in. You've got two exits and they're both seed stage, which means there wasn't a big outcome. Um, 
sorry, I, I went too quickly. Uh, the, they, they weren't big outcomes, but they were, uh, they were sold, I would say post A, uh, the, those, the other two that are still operating are at seed stage and have just closed on seed rounds. Are those companies you invested in or companies you run? Uh, co-founder, uh, small investment, uh, co-founder, board member and advisor. So an hour a week, you know, advising at this point. As a co-founder? Yes. Okay. That's, that's interesting. I would say that, that that's probably going to be something. I don't know if you've gotten pushback from other investors on that. I haven't yet, but again, it's an hour a week. Mm -hmm. So they're, they have, both of them have uh, eight. One has 10, a team of 10 and the others six people okay so you you've really pulled yourself completely, completely no, I have completely, literally and it's an hour a week on these on these two i enjoy their one is uh working on uh, a whole new way to make uh cement um, and the other is another material so all the companies i've been doing are materials companies thanks to that basf uh, uh, experience mm -hmm. why did you get excited about sicilium silicium why am I excited? This is so I've been doing lots of these things. I have lots of choices of the things I can be doing uh, in, in the world. And uh, this definitely gets me out of bed every day. I love the opportunity. I mean, as an entrepreneur, who doesn't love the opportunity to completely change uh, and improve an entire industry? So I am completely geeked about doing that and love materials. These guys I'm working with who I didn't get to are. Uh, all really seasoned veterans. And uh, again, I've done this quite a few times and having this quality, this um, uh, grade of a team this early is, has been unusual for me. Then what's the biggest weakness of your team? Uh, I would say the, the uh, if there's a weakness, there's not enough of us at this point. Uh, the weakness probably is we're still within the uh, university and we need to raise a little more capital to uh, hire the right engineering. Uh, we're on version two of this machine doing this. We need to iterate at least one more, maybe two more times. So we do need more engineering uh, firepower. What's the IP status with Carnegie Mellon? Uh, it turns out I spent uh, almost five years in the tech transfer office a long time ago. Uh, so uh, that's, this is how all of these things have happened. I've gotten to know so many uh, faculty and staff there, of course, over the years, but uh, uh, two patents, both licensed worldwide exclusive, exclusively, and we do have an incubation agreement so we can be on campus and maintain and own all the IP that we generate there. How much equity do they have then? Uh, they have 10.5%. Ooh, that's a lot. It, it is high, but it was, uh, it was managed. So there's a... Oh, it's a bit of a story, but there, it's a standard spinoff license. Uh, I don't think there are any other universities that do this. So there, it's a formula. Uh, 6% is for an exclusive. Uh, we deferred patent fees and a couple years incubating. So that adds up to, and, and there are in, um, inventors that didn't go along with the company. So they do get a little bit of equity um, as part of the license deal. Okay, understood. Um, Juliana, do you want to go first or second sure. or whatever? Yeah, yeah, whatever works. Um, 
Well, Randy, really impressive that you've had multiple exits. You know, it's always tricky, I think, for founders to be able to scale businesses, perform, and exit the businesses. So really impressive. And tech transfer is always tricky as well, but it seems like you've kind of figured out a nice strategy. Um, so the first thing I just wanted to ask is, you know, maybe you can kind of talk through some of your traction to date um, and some of your customers that you've been working with thus far. Um, sure. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, we're really at the LOI stage. So we we are probably, I would say, a year and a half away from something that we, a full-size uh, wafer and cell that we can put in front of somebody to start doing that, their own internal uh, testing and qualification. So we're at the LOI process and, and still doing some discovery. So we're, we are early, we are pre-seed, we're perfect for forward. Uh, because that that really is the focus for us at um, at the accelerator level is to nail some more customer discovery and uh, to start uh, stacking up these LOIs. The few people that I've spoken to already, uh, it, it's um, this has been a wonderful discussion. Everybody is is pretty much the same so far. Saying what the hell's taking you so long? Uh, we're willing to pay a premium. Just please produce. So uh, we're we're getting really uh, it's early, but so far uh, we've we've been uh, welcomed with uh, open arms. Wonderful. And then, are you guys producing? You know, I'm assuming at a co-manufacturer at the stage, or in-house, or kind of what's your scale up? Yeah, um, yeah. At, sure. Yeah, at this point, uh, we're going to do the crazy thing, which is uh, build custom equipment and put 250 of them in a. Uh, in a plant and uh, go for it. They're about, we're estimating right now about 35,000 a piece uh, for these equipment. So th this is not, you know, th this is a second meeting to go deep into how we do it, but um, there is, so two patents already, but there's plenty of um, uh, trade secret here as well. So we plan to use that uh, and to build a plant We're we're, the, the, as a group, we're builders, so this this is what uh, interests us. And if if we're being honest, uh, it is easily the best way to get a better return for our shareholders. So, and then you guys have experience, you know, scaling up in terms of doing manufacturing in house. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I've done this within BASF. My role uh, here, if it isn't obvious, I I'm the external person. I'm the sales and marketing guy. Uh, engineering undergrad MBA, but I'm the, you know, I'm the external guy. Everybody else is very technical. I'm the guy that tries to translate all that and land the uh, LOIs and uh, future customers and partners. So we, we, where we have started, uh, since Eric has built polysilicon plants, he has friends that have uh, uh, all this great experience and are in the polysilicon plant, U.S. polysilicon uh, business units. So this is where we pretty much started uh, because supply chain is super important, of course, uh, throughout this whole thing. So um, that's where we started. I'm not sure I answered your whole question there. Nope, that was great. I'm going to pass it on so I don't take up all the questions. <laughs> I'll pass it over to Nice. Cool. Um, thanks. Yeah, Randy, um, uh, I think one of the questions I didn't quite get uh, was you said you, there's no one doing this in the U.S., um, are people doing something similar elsewhere? And how important is this market? Like, is it 
can it not be a global market or you know what else differentiates you from the international competition if there's any yeah today um yeah i apologize if that didn't come clear uh uh, today, the people that are producing here in the U.S., there are modular manufacturers in the U.S. You saw on, the, on those uh, uh, charts. They are importing cells. Um, uh, produce, so somebody produces wafers. I guess this isn't uh, terribly well known. 97, 98% of all wafers today are produced by four companies in China. So they do sell to other folks who are making uh, cells. Some module companies have backward integrated into making their own cells, but they buy wafers. In the US, people buy completed cells and have those, uh, those shipped. So, uh, so it's, is, your, is your benefit then, is it like a geopolitical benefit that you're bringing or is there like a, an economic benefit to producing in the US as well? Yeah, the, the exciting part for us is that it's both. So our continuous process cuts costs in half, regardless of where your plant is, is, uh, is situated. And the second is it is the geopolitical with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, uh, and all the incentives. Uh, didn't have time to talk about this, but the incentive for us as a wafer and cell manufacturer is uh, $12 per square meter. This actually turns out, because our process is pretty straightforward, it turns out to be about 30% of our costs. So this is a huge, a huge incentive. Uh, the module manufacturers also have, have incentive, not, not as large, but they do have incentives uh, in place, thanks to the IRA, to, to purchase a US domestic source. And then I got to ask as a German, um, how reliant is your business model on that incentive? But not sure you're probably familiar with how Germany subsidized a huge solar yeah. industry. It went big, then they stopped and it completely faltered overnight. Um, yep. So yeah, tell us to your yeah. unit economics, maybe. Yeah, I hesitate to uh, talk about the IRA because that is the exact question that comes up every single time. Can this business stand on its own? And absolutely, the financials um, we can dig back in, but the financials, this is a real business with or without the IRA. The IRA makes it amazingly profitable, uh, but uh, this is a real profitable actual business uh, um, regardless. We can grow faster with the IRA, of course. But do, do you have any any numbers or is it too soon for that? Uh, we we have, um, I, of course, I wouldn't be much of a uh, guy. So uh, high level, we see we're about 75 million in revenue in 27 with six or 7 million in uh, bottom line in net profits, net operating income. So we think revenue should begin uh, in the end of 24 in ramp. Uh, to 26, and then, and then we'll continue ramping. But we should be in 26 up to a full, a full factory. Uh, the way the financials are created, it gives us more of a ramp. Don't raise 50, 60 million at one time, but do it, uh, do it gradually over over time. So we see it as a real business, and we're and we are. 
excited about doing this. Why manufacture yourself versus going the contract manufacturer route? Uh, again, it's custom pieces of equipment that that are uh, somewhat full of um, uh, of our own IP uh, trade secrets, and we think keeping control of that uh, brings more value in the end. Could you elaborate the the trade secret or the secret sauce a bit more? Uh, I'm, I'm especially curious because fifty percent cost reduction. That's amazing. I mean, that would be a game changer, I think, for the for the whole industry. Um, very cool to see that, and I hope I hope uh, that's that's feasible. Too. Uh, what's the what's the, um, the the secret sauce behind it? Okay, we if you want, we can get into this. So, uh, in uh, it's been really since the '80s, earliest one actually in the '60s, but in the '80s. Let let me step back just a little bit. It makes no sense whatsoever for the solar industry to be using round bulls, as they're called, to make solar panels. These are, they, you know, 50, 60 years ago, maybe even longer, those were created uh, for the chip industry. The chip, use, chip industry uses round uh, wafers uh, because of uh, dynamics, all kinds of reasons. Um, they use round uh, wafers. And this process that, that we start with in the solar industry produces that same round uh, uh, profile uh, or cylinder, I should say. So that uh, this is a complete hangover for the uh, industry. So um, the requirements, so probably one question is, why aren't you selling and working in the chip industry? The hurdle or the, the bar is much lower in the solar industry from a purity and, and a material composition perspective. So we can enter that market much sooner. And it makes no sense to start with a, a cylinder and cut all four sides and then cut it like a loaf of bread uh, to produce rectangles. It makes no sense. So back in the um, late 70s, early 80s, there was a significant push uh, by many companies to do this back then. Eric spent, and it never worked. So Eric spent uh, these 10 years, our, our CTO, Eric Yitzi, spent 10 years with that assumption that these don't, that this doesn't work and why not? So he identified uh, three things that uh, are, are caused that. Really rather not talk about this in a very public uh, uh, setting. So uh, if, really, if you'd like to really talk about this, uh, we, we can do that, but he has identified Sorry to be so cagey, oh, but absolutely uh, makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I, general picture was already very helpful because I I totally believe in 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 that in the idea, and I think silicium is a, I think ninety nine percent or something is, is sourced from one country in the world, and there's a lot of dependency, and I think that's uh, yeah, whatever helps to make solar bigger is is very um, much needed. And um, follow up question on that is your process. Um, restricted on on one or on a few cell types, or can you change that depending on the customer? Yeah, uh, the, that's the plan. Is to uh, be part of customer discovery is also working on the requirements for the for the products. So there will be multiple sizes. There will be multiple uh, other other things. Um, P and versions. Um, uh, there most of the big variety uh, comes on the cell side, 
but yes, uh, we do expect to meet customer requirements and produce multiple uh, multiple types of, of silicon. Absolutely. Last question from my end. Um, do you have a strategy on how to finance the production assets um, that you will need to build up? Uh, we, we have a strategy. Um, time will tell if that strategy makes any sense uh, or not. But uh, so there are a whole lot of uh, leasing options. There's some extremely creative uh, uh, companies there now, at least in the U.S., not sure about the rest of the world. Uh, so they, they will take uh, some equity. They'll, they're very creative. So I suspect we may do some creative financing uh, to get to this point. But the reason we can go on to do this slowly is we, of course, need uh, proof that it works above one machine. So uh, there's a pace of producing multiple machines of some quantity uh, to prove that we can do this and, and produce and sell very specific uh, products. So uh, it's a phased approach and possibly uh, some creative financing. What's the biggest risk you see in the business? Uh, for us, the, the hands down, the biggest risk is to make sure that we can pull uh, the, the wafer. It, it, think of it like uh, a float glass. If you're familiar with the PPG or the way they make glass, same kind of thing. Uh, glass, as it hardens, floats, it turns out. Uh, polysilicon, as it melts and hardens, floats also. So we are pulling it. Uh, horizontally. So the rate at which we pull it is absolutely the uh, uh, the, the most important uh, aspect of, of this from a technical perspective. And did you say what TRL status you're at? Uh, we believe it's a four. Okay. Any, any last questions, folks? Awesome. Then Randy, thanks for, Thank thanks you. for pitching. Thanks for presenting. Yeah. We've got one last awesome company of the night and that is Larissa. Larissa. And do you want to take things away about T7 Berlin and right. go, uh, go custom printing for us? <laughs> Hello everybody. I'm representing Germany right now. <laughs> I'm sharing my screen. Do you see my screen? Can I start? I see you. Oh. I am very sorry for that. No worries. But now. <laughs> there we go. We got it. Thank you. Take it away. So T7 Berlin, zero waste and plastic free. What is it exactly? We are worldwide the only brand offering 3D neatware. We are fully operational since end of 2019. We are growing organically. Uh, we have 84% of customer retention. We are since two years on the break even. And in the meantime, we are not only commercially successful, we won or, and we are nominated to several awards. And I'm very proud to be nominated shortly to the Sustainable Fashion Award from Drapers. We are share the same list with eBay in the category best use of technology. Press love us as well, exactly as our customers. And if you ask me why our customers love us, it's because of this 3D knitting technology, because 
Each single piece adapts itself to the human body shape. Practically speaking, it means that it's much more comfortable while wearing. That's why our customers come back to us in pretty 100%. And there are also some customer loyalty in numbers. So as you may see, the an average T7 Berlin customer buys three times more as a common customer, and our return rate is three times less as a common return rate is e-commerce. But of course, there is also a problem which we are battle again, and this is a greenwashing in apparel industry. I mean, um, of course, we know everybody. Uh, everybody knows about CO two emission. Everybody knows about unfair working condition, and overall world pollution. But there is also something else: a microplastic, which we eat, breathe, and drink each single day. 37% of microplastic is here in the world just because the humanity produce wear and wash polyester clothing. So everybody who is behind on the screen, check your closet and check all your polyester and nylon sheets and leggings. Each single piece made of polyester will survive your grandchild. And this is our answer. We are truly sustainable knitwear made with 3D technology. Uh, we have a zero waste manufacturing process. We use 100% plastic free certified yarn. We produce locally everything from yarn to labels. And uh, we also help to secure jobs in the EU because we work with the European factories only. We also fully identify us with the global goals uh, in terms, especially for responsible consumption and partnerships for the goals. But we have also our own goal. There is actually animal health and animal welfare. That's why we use Moolisink free wool only. And there we go. We built a brand which solve a real problem, a brand for real people with a real need. So we are not about fashion, we are about clothing. Clothing which is manufactured, distributed, and worn in an environmental-friendly way. We have the best price quality ratio in the middle price segment. And we have a technological lead in 3D knitting. We operate in a very huge market because clothing is a natural need like bread and food. So generally, and this market is grow worldwide with 5.8%. And we are already here on the market. Um, I mean, <laughs> everybody start to think about sustainability, also in the D2C sector. And in German uh, Federal Ministry for Environment predict to have more than 30% share of the sustainably made products in D2C sector. And we are already here. We already have customers and our customers already love us. One minute warning. Oh, I'm sorry. We barely have competitors. And we started in 2019 and planning to have IPO in 2079, uh, I'm sorry. We are fundraising 3 million euros. And this is our team. So I'm, uh, I have a degree in textile engineering and second degree in international business. I spent around 20 years in the textile industry. So I'm a USP too. If somebody can build a brand next Adidas, it's me. And I have Elvin and Elizabeth which are fully dedicated to the team, to values, and to what we are doing right now. And there is also some kind of exit scenario because I know I'm very special product and a very special market you might not be familiar with, but strong brand is also strong commercial value. Thank you. 
Awesome. And thank you as well. I will bring in the other investors. And to clarify a couple things, A is someone who speaks German. She meant 2027 for the IPO, not 2072. A, B, um, you said you guys are middleware or middle priced, but your sweaters are 100 bucks a sweater. Is that really what's considered middle price? Absolutely. Absolutely. Middle prices, everything which is um, um, less as 200 euros. If you will see the textile market as a whole, you have luxury, but you start with 500 euros per piece and we are less as 200. Okay. As someone who doesn't have logos on almost any of his stuff, it's a, I might not be your target. You have to think about sustainability and how it was produced. Now we are not the Chinese children, which are seen seen somewhere in, in, you know, under the ears and producing. What are, what are your margins? What are, what are the production costs for you guys? Uh, Our gross margin is around 65% right now. And our operational EBIT is around 16%. But we will be, because we are on the break even already um, operationally, but it will be better. It will increase itself to around 70% because, because of economy, economies of scale. As more pieces we will let produce, as more will be, will, we will be profitable. How do the economies of scale work with 3D printing? It's not printing, it's knitting. It's a different technology. Um, Each single piece or each single style is calculated based on a special software. A special, and this software program will be just pulled to the machine, which produce labor less. As well, there is, of course, some handish operations necessary, you know, to wash it, to fold it, to bring a label on and to send it to Germany, to me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but generally speaking, it's laborless and it's based on software. So that's why it's scalable and that's why it's uh, economies of scale working for it. Because it really doesn't matter for which country I do produce it. And it's the same style. You know, sweater is just a sweater. Everybody has at least one in the virtual. Maybe Africa will be will not be the very nice and interesting market, but there is a lot of huge potential in North Europe, in the UK, in US, in Canada. Free everywhere. So you, you kind of brought up one of the biggest challenges that I see in spaces like this is a sweater is just a sweater. Those that was kind of your wording. How do you build a brand and something defensible when a sweater is just a sweater or a shirt is just a shirt? How do you build something that can be venture scale? <clears throat> because it's the right product to the right time and to the right price. You know, we are talking about sustainability and I'm really happy to see that the people really start to understand it. That we as a person, you know, not in a big industry as itself, but we as a person, as a human, are also responsible for sustainability. And we are three years in the market and we see this growing increase and we see this uh, appreciation of real people which are coming to us and saying, wow, you are truly sustainable. You don't buy for yourself a seal, a sustainability seal, but you are made of 100% natural fabric, you are made in zero waste manufacturing, you produce everything locally, so you don't need to measure something, you don't need to, to tell about sustainability, you are sustainable. And this is our core brand value, and that's what we represent, and what I live for. You know, I spent 20 years in the industry, I saw how polluting it can be and how the processes are going down and um, so everything what belongs to how cheap can you bring your prices down as you guys do grow in scale because 
you're, you're able to be sustainable, but you're also only able to address part of the market because of the pricing. Uh, you know, I'm not a politician and I'm not a uh, scientist. I don't know how to solve a social problem. To be honest, it is a social problem, but we are affordable at least for the 20% of the market. And I hope that we will be more affordable in the future. But it's a social problem, which I cannot solve. But what I can do, I can bring a product on the market, which I'm proud of, and everybody is uh, able, or uh, everybody who is who is able to afford it is will appreciate. Can you can you clarify what you mean by it's a social problem? I mean, uh, if you don't have enough income, of course you uh, you are taking care of where you spend your income, and of course, if your income is too low, you cannot afford a sweater for one hundred fifty euros. That's for sure. But that's that's what I personally cannot change. I would love to, but I can. And but what I was asking is, if you once you reach scale, what kind of price point do you see your being able to sell your sweaters at? Ah, oh, I'm sorry. Um, I misunderstood you. Sorry. Um, we try to keep the same price points in the future too. Understood. Any questions, folks? Take them away. Um, yeah, I think. Uh, can you clarify to me what the difference is between three D knitting and knitting? I mean. Hmm. That's just my, my personal ignorance, I guess. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, shortly speaking, uh, if while producing clothing, you produce a fabric first, knitted fabric or sewing fabric, it really doesn't matter. And then you cut a piece and then you sew it together. And uh, 3D knitting, it's completely different technology. You produce a, each single piece as a whole. Um, it repeats human body contour. It will be produced like, you know... Um, like those knitted shoes, right? I'm sorry? Like the knitted shoes that you see people making now. They're making like, strange molds. Um, not really. You saw most probably in a museum uh, night equipment. So you know that it has volume and it's, it's, it's done like a one single piece. So uh, you may imagine that a sweater made in 3D technology uh, has the same contour, it has the same volume. And practically speaking, it's just much more comfortable. It's really crazy because nobody has, or it's very few persons in the world can, can really understand it. But once worn, once put it on, you really understand that's a completely different way of clothing. And that's why customers come back to us. Or, so is it like a, a sweater that has no seams because it's like knitted? from one continuous string yeah kind of okay understood um and you say you're using merino wool if i understand correctly yeah um, certified mullicine free from the uh, uh <laughs> you mm -hmm. might understand <laughs> yeah understood uh, how scalable is is that like how many sweaters can you produce a year before you need to import it or before the externalities of holding livestock will, will have an impact? Mm -hmm. That's actually our challenge right now because we sell much quicker as we can produce, but we cannot produce only because of the liquidity issues. We are completely self-financing. Till now, um, our exclusive um, manufacturer 
if you have uh, exclusive production contract, this is able to work in three shifts the whole year. And um, if you just think that an uh, average time for producing a sweater, so basic sweater is 35 minutes only, so and you can recalculate it or calculate it higher to the timing, well, we can serve half of the, of the world even with a one production facility, but there is also two another production facilities which we are able to work with because the technology itself is known, but uh, um, it's used mainly for underwear, for sport leggings and something like that. And the program or for each single stage, um, they are developed by me, so I have ownership and they cannot produce it without my programs. Okay, not sure I got quite what I wanted from that, uh, but I'll hand over to tomorrow to Juliana. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you uh, for the pitch and uh, very interesting. I also visited your website, um, and I think from a, it's it's interesting that you chose the D two C path because I think you have the the way you are differentiating is the production process. So my my question would be, why are you not becoming a supplier to other um, brands, um, especially if if uh, I think, at least when I look at, at your, it's basically two questions, why, why not get, becoming a supplier? And the other one is when I look at the website, I, I, I still think as a potential customer, design is very important. And I'm not sure if you are differentiating also in terms of design against other competitors. Mm -hmm. Um, I start with design. Um, this is a concept. We offer modern basics because a global trend is going into unisex and very easy going pieces. That's why. So, um, as I mentioned while my piece, uh, we don't make fashion, we make clothing. So everybody can wear, everybody can meet and everybody or pretty, everybody can buy. Um, this is a strategy and this is a future. There we go in so as as a humanity. And concerning the production, look, we have an exclusivity. Uh, why should I produce for other brands and dilute my margin and lost this exclusivity actually if I can use this point for selling it to the customers too because they cannot get it anywhere just in my brand. That's why I want to have not only ownership for the process, but also an ownership for, for distribution. That's why um, I'm also against wholesale. Uh, besides of the fact that wholesale is dying, um, that's why I mean, I'm ex I have an exclusive product. Okay. And so, so you have more brand value, you know, you cannot brand, uh, build a brand if you don't have anything that is quite exclusive. And this is what I have. Okay. Okay. So you are, but also also on the on the manufacturing, you are licensing the machine, or you're licensing the, the process. It's not your machine. Um, no, currently not. They are leased by my production partner. It's a separate company, but I have an exclusive manufacturing contract with them concerning this using of these machines. Okay. Okay. So, because I have to protect myself, of course, too. And then. So let's. There, there are two ways of impact. One is that you're reducing the impact on the people that would have to sue or knit the the clothing, yeah. and the yeah. other is impact that that you use the the wool, the natural wool. That that's very good. But let's say 
the impact is already that nobody has to, to, to knit these sweaters. Why are you um, targeting such a high um, price segment? Whereas, I mean, the cool the cool thing is that it's an automated production. That would mean you could produce a very high output given one fixed investment. Why are you not trying to rather focus uh, on, on the lower price segment? To be honest, I'm. Uh, this is a personal thing, first of all, because I'm against fast fashion as a person. This is a segment of business which polluted the whole world, and I am really against. Of, I think that they all have to start to to uh, consume sustainably as well, not only sustainable produced pieces, but uh, also you know not to buy endless number of of. Uh, cheap produced and cheap cheap priced clothing but to concentrate on uh, something which is really valuable this is you know this is my personal value but besides of it um besides of my personal value uh, there is also another point we are using a very high uh, quality material we use molything free wool only of the highest premium uh, of the highest quality it has the price of course um, I'm taking care of, we are taking care of the whole supply chain. This is also important for me that, you know, that the animals have a good life. And uh, this is actually um, South of Africa only can, um, where you can buy such kind of quality of the wool. Uh, it's produced locally in the, within the EU and with EU, I don't mean with uh, cheaper producing uh, countries like Bulgaria or Romania. This is Italy, that's Lettland and that's Poland and Berlin, Germany. And even if it's pretty near, near, near to laborless, it still has a price. So we keep our processes very efficient, but we uh, invest in the quality, you know. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. You know, I, I will coming up on 11 here. So just my kind of final question is, you know, going off of a little bit what more has shared and asked, um, you know, looking at your manufacturing processes, do you guys intend to want to patent, you know, your processes or, you know, protect them um, in terms of when you're working with your manufacturers? Any thoughts there? Because I do think you have a unique kind of model and process and there is a demand right now for sustainable clothing. Mm -hmm. I'm very sorry, I barely understand you because of some uh, connection problem, but I guess you asked about the patenting, right? Yes, correct. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I start to think about it, but, um, you know, I have a running business and we are a very small team and uh, we have a real business, so there is always something, but I think about it. I think about to protect at least the programs and the styles. Wonderful things. Awesome, Larissa. Then thanks for thanks for presenting. I want to make sure we keep things kind of uh, as snap as we can for everybody. Unfortunately, Niels had to jump off for another uh, for another call. But now it's the the last segment of the the startup tank where uh, dun 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 we crowned a, a climate startup of the night. I got Niels picks, and. Um, then yeah, this is the part of the night where, as investors, we kind of talk about okay, who would be be most interested in to invest in, set up a meeting with, et cetera. Where do we see the biggest potential and why? 
Um, Morris, Julian, anyone want to go first? Okay, looks like Morris does. <laughs> I was just about to unmute myself. Yeah. So, uh, what what should I? What's the order? Should I? Number one, number two for you, and then we'll see if there's any type of consensus. And sure. of course, everyone that presented, you did an incredible job. You have a great company. This is no way, shape, or form to, disparaging towards what you're doing, but we have to pick someone, so we're going to pick someone. So take it away, Moritz. Yes, yes, I totally agree. Thank you all for, for the great pitches, very cool ideas. Um, my number one would be ElectroOne. Um, why? Because I think there's a lot of potential in the energy sector um, to, to improve, um, especially also on the end, end consumer side. Um, I like that so first of all i like i like the team um I, I like they have they have a lot of experience um very smart guys um but then also i like the different layers um that that you start by steering the consumption and then also um getting different layers on top until like there is a virtual power plant in the end um which i think is, is very smart but that also brings me to the challenge i think it's for now it's still very broad um business and i think to to develop that further i would i would like to see more uh, a more narrow focus on on what actually what what's the usp you're you're focusing on awesome and juliana yeah you know i really liked um i hope i'm pronouncing this right but siofium i really liked you guys um and i feel like you know, based on their team having a number of exits and knowing how to scale businesses, I think that's one of the most challenging pieces of the whole climate tech space is how do we, you know, move the whole industry forward. So I really liked, um, you know, what they were doing and like their track record. I like their team. Um, and I think, you know, it's early, so many things can happen, but um, I think they've thought through it from that standpoint. I also really liked uh, T7 in Berlin. Um, I thought they did a really nice job about, you know, a circular economy as part of their business model. Um, and I appreciated their leadership's experiences. And I think it's a pretty sustainable business model moving forward. And I think they could also really kind of lean into making their manufacturing its own business. Um, and then the third was I do really also like the um, ocean-based climate solutions company as well, because I think the oceans will be a big key to unlocking, um, you know, further solutions in terms of decreasing emissions. Um, I think it's a, it's a challenging business model, but I think if companies can do this right, where we can use the oceans to sequester more carbon without creating um, environmental consequences, I think there's a lot of promise there. It's coming up with the right business model. So that's my thanks. I would agree. So from Neil's side, Neil said number one for him was Electro One. And number two would be uh, ocean-based climate solutions. So I think he would probably mirror a lot of what you have said and a lot of what's been said as well. My big challenge, I liked ocean-based solutions as well. The big challenge I see is turning it into a real into a real business versus kind of a grant-based save the world approach seems challenging on from my perspective um i liked um uh, silicium would be the probably the most interesting one for me along with uh electro one both of them have 
some pretty large challenges, Silicium needing a, a ton of capital and Electra one needing the kind of network effects and the, the size of the market to be able to really make it work. But overall, those would be the those would be the two that were the most interesting for for me from from my side of things and for for forward VC. Um, it sounds like we have sort of a consensus a bit around yeah. Electra one maybe as like one and Silicium as two or one A and one B. Yes, I would. I wanted to add that silicium. I also would my second my second guess. I I even worked for a solar company t- uh, five years, and and I know that the struggle of developing uh, solar panels. Um, so I think they're really targeting a very big market. Uh, I would love to understand better what their USP or their key differentiator is. Um, but I totally understand. Uh, I think it's I think it's how they make I think it's how they make this. So like if you ever watched them make pasta and you see them grab those little things and like draw it out. It, apparently, from what he said, they're they're pulling out circles and they're cutting them into squares and they're throwing away the parts that aren't the the square shape, which yes. seems seems pretty straightforward in terms of awesomeness. Now, how that actually functions and how they do that whole nother story, but it seems very interesting. Definitely agree on that. So then, uh, Silicium Electra one, we would crown you co champions of the night. If there was prizes, you could uh, you could fight over it, but the prizes honor uh and um, glory in eternity so um thank you for everyone who's come on and presented juliana moritz where's the best place for people to find out more about what you do and who should reach out um you guys are welcome to find me on linkedin or happy to share um, my email yeah uh, same here linkedin or uh, betterventures.io io is for impact only uh, you can find us there and there's also a funding button so you can just uh, apply there and if you want to learn more about us and forward vc we're at forward.vc the number forward.vc we invest in climate companies that move the world forward you can check out our accelerator 12-week program which is hands-on 170 plus mentors yours truly we become your partner in crime and forcibly scale and push steroid success uh, pilots and projects and corporates down your mouth so that you can have the real traction that your company needs coming out to have a business and raise. For more information, forward.vc. And if you want to pitch on one of our upcoming sessions, uh, the startuptank.com, you can find our application forms there. Apply for your pre-seed to a pre-series A climate company, then we're willing to give you a shot. And there you'll also find our Climate VC database in case you're looking to raise funding and find uh, find your ideal investor. You can filter by stage, sector, geography, and check size, which means you can find exactly the right person for your company. So again, forward.vc, it's all there. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Thanks, everyone, for contributing. And until next time, yeah, go make it happen. Cheers. Thank you, everyone. All right.